when you can really be clear about who you are and what you bring and why you are writing, it prevents you from getting lost in comparison, in feeling like you should be doing things differently. Because we don't want you to write someone else's book. We want you to write your book. Your book is what your reader needs. We need your story and the unique thing you bring to it and not the things that you think other people want from you. Hey there, welcome back to Lip Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writing career by learning how to blend passion with business. That means that my focus on this podcast is helping writers find the best literary agent for them and understand if they are the best match for their business and writing career, as well as learn how to write the best manuscript possible so that they can write a story that hooks that dream agent. I'm Abigail Perry, a book coach and certified developmental editor who is enthusiastic about guiding you through this process, and I'm eager to share today's episode, which focuses on craft with a fun new angle brought to you by a fellow book coach and companion and wonderful one at that named Danny Abernathy. Danny started writing novels to connect herself while in the haze of mothering young children. At this time, motherhood had stripped away her identity in a way that she hadn't imagined, and she started to write fantasy novels that allowed her to process deep issues through her creativity and to find a purpose and to have real conversations with the characters in her head. After hitting a wall with her own writing, Danny discovered the magical power of book coaching. She hired a book coach and through this wonderful experience, decided to pursue book coaching as a career herself. Today, Danny is an author accelerator certified book coach, which means that she's received training from Jenny Nash. And as a really cool niche for Danny, she focuses specifically on helping writers understand their personality as well as the personality of their characters so that they can bring self awareness and their unique powers into their craft. The personality test that Danny has specialized in and really understands deeply is the Enneagram test. And that is the focus for us today. So we're going to get to know Danny. We're going to learn a little bit more about book coaching. What is it? How can it actually help writers? And then we're going to learn about how Danny uses Enneagram in order to help writers understand their personalities and how to incorporate a diverse cast of personalities in order to make great conflict and plot that is character driven. We also are going to experiment with personality types, including a variety of personality types with a case study. I pick the Hunger Games. You probably have heard me talk about my love for the Hunger Games. And we dive through some of the main characters in that book and discuss why those personality types fit the characters and make the story interesting. I hope this sounds interesting to you. I know I learned a lot from it. If nothing else, I think it's always fun to explore personality tests and even better when understanding those personality tests makes us better writers and maybe even understanding how we might react to feedback, react to what type of publishing route we want to go to. So all of this can bring an educational and entertaining opportunity. With that being said, I bring you Danny Abernathy. Hi, Danny. Thanks for joining me today. I'm really excited to have you. Danny is a book coach in the Author Accelerator program. So we got to meet each other that way. And it's so nice to finally meet you over camera. Thank you, Abigail. I'm really happy to be here. 
It's going to be a great conversation. I know that you have so much to offer and I love following you on Instagram and all your tips. And one of the things that I'd love for the writers to learn a little bit more about you is what did your career path look like? Because I know that you work with writers, but you're also a fantasy author. That's such an interesting question. I don't have a background in publishing or literature or anything. Like my college degree was in video editing. Of course, I've always been a reader and I've always loved writing. I think I started my first novel when I was in third grade. For a while, I didn't think I was a writer. I thought I was an instructional writer, not a creative writer. But several years ago, my partner and I had infertility and miscarriages. And I, in my grief, I rediscovered poetry. And it sort of saved me in a lot of ways. It gave me an avenue for processing my emotions. I ended up having kids. And when they were very small, I felt a little bit like I was losing myself. And I think I probably had postpartum depression, but I needed something. And so I started writing novels as a way to use my brain and to let something for myself to have adult conversations with the characters in my head. So I, I started writing and I didn't really know what I was doing. So I got a few manuscripts in and wasn't getting the results that I wanted. At that point, I had heard about Jenny Nash on a podcast. She's the founder of Author Accelerator, where we are trained or training. So I, I hired a book coach and it just totally changed my understanding of how story works and my belief in my ability to write the story I wanted to tell. And I was just like, I want to do this. I want to help writers. I don't want them to experience the same frustration and aloneness that I did because I almost just stopped writing. I thought, well, I just can't do this, which wasn't true. I just needed help. So I've been a book coach for a couple of years and it's so lovely. I am starting a new fantasy series. I write fantasy. None of my novels are published, but I'm trying to figure out how much do I still need to write? Do I just want to coach? I'm trying to figure out my relationship to writing now and what it means to me now. I think at different walks of life at different times, it comes into it. And so many writers here, they do have the mindset of, I'd like a, to build a career out of this. But we also have to have a joy out of writing. Writing is hard. If you are going to seriously write a book and it, there's nothing wrong with just journaling, just to journal expressing yourself through that. I've talked about this before in another episode, and I think that writing is this beautiful gift of therapeutic expression. And if you want to build a career as an author, you have to write multiple books. And that's hard work. Of course, it is. But it's also writing is a life learning process. So part of that, I think, with you and what you do with coaching, how are you helping writers figure out what they're trying to tell and how they're trying to tell it. And then you mentioned that at certain parts of your process, you can feel like you want to give up. So in that, how do you guide your clients in self-funding and exploring if it's something that they should go forward with or if it's something that maybe has done its service and will feed out? Looking inside yourself and figuring out why you write, why you're writing this book in particular, a lot of the work I do with my writers is about helping them to understand themselves better because I think that's such an important part of what you bring to your novel. And I think you, the writer, are the most important part of your story. You are the roots of your story tree, so to say. 
when you get to a place where you are feeling stuck or discouraged or your energy for this project has waned, I think it helps so much to look inside yourself and think about what about this story called to me? And was I trying to answer a question for myself? Am I trying to help my reader feel seen? Am I trying to communicate this idea that I think is vitally important to who I am and to how I live? Am I writing for fun, purely for the joy of it? How you answer that question is going to have so much impact on what choice you make next. For example, I was writing a series. I'm an Enneagram type four. I use the Enneagram in my writing. And type fours are called the individualist. Sometimes they're called the romantic. We're very much about authenticity, finding our truest selves. So I write to answer my own questions and to be understood and then to help people understand themselves better. So I was working on a series. I'd written multiple books in the series, but I was still learning to write. So they weren't published. And I got to a point where I was like, you know, I don't think I need to explore these questions anymore. I don't think I want to put the energy into this that it would take to really make these books work because I've moved on. I just thanked those books for what they meant to me and what they taught me. And then I allowed myself to step away and to let another idea grow. So I think it's really about looking at why you're writing and whether that reason for writing still, that book is still meeting that role and that purpose for you. Oh, I agree with you. I think that's something that I'm always asking writers. And I always say there's no right or wrong to this. But mm -hmm. if you're going to carry a story to the end, and especially if you're going to build a career, you should love what you're doing because mm -hmm. it will be hard. So often holding on to the reason why you started that book to begin with is what yeah. will carry you through. And maybe you don't love every part of the process, but you love why you're doing it. Like yes. it means something important to you. Yes. You just mentioned the Enneagram, the personality type that you are. And this is a large reason why we're here today. Something that I really like about book coaches and editors, just like literary agents, is that they specialize. So when we specialize in something, whether or not that's genre or some sort of specialty when it comes to the coaching process, that makes you unique and services an important area or group of writers that are looking for that specific thing that maybe was holding them back. And you, I feel like your specialty, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like it's really understanding these personalities, not only mm -hmm. for the writers, but how you can start to understand personalities and characters. Talk to us about what is the Enneagram test, in case listeners don't know what that is, and why this? Why is this what you gravitated towards as your specialty? The Enneagram is a personality system that groups people into nine types, type one, type two, all the way to type nine. The image, you probably have seen it's a circle with all these intersecting lines. What I love about the Enneagram in comparison to some of the other personality types like the Myers-Briggs, which is INFJ, it's all the letters. I love the Enneagram because it's simple enough to remember, but it's so deep. And I think a lot of the other systems are more about sort of behaviors, like the way you present in the world. But the Enneagram also talks about why, why you are that way in the world. So it really talks about fears and desires which is so perfect for writers <laughs> because that's what you need to know about your characters in order to write a really impactful story. I've always been drawn to personality things. And when I found out about the Enneagram, it was immediately my favorite personality system to use and to learn more about myself through. 
And so when I became a coach, initially, I didn't have the Enneagram on my radar as a tool to use. But the more I got into my work with clients, the more I just naturally found myself leaning into this deep character work. At one point, I taught a workshop on using the Enneagram in your writing. And obviously, this is a tool that is so helpful and that I love. Now, my work with writers, it's kind of twofold. I believe that you discover your story as you discover yourself and vice versa. You discover yourself as you discover your story. And so I kind of have these dual layers of work with my clients. And one of them is helping them understand themselves, helping them understand why they write, what their author superpowers are, embrace who they are and how that impacts their stories. Then we also use the Enneagram to shape their characters. One of the things that's so powerful about the Enneagram in writing is that it gives you this framework for building realistic characters in such a way that you don't have to start from nothing. You don't have to start from a blank page. You can use this framework of a personality type and you can pick the type that is going to make for the most powerful story. And then obviously, once you know your character's type, you deepen them, you make them distinct and individual. But I think it's such a great system for making sure that your characters are shaped in such a way that they are supporting your story and also making sure your characters are different from each other. It can help you see how each of your characters can reflect your point. And it's just such a great system. I think the Enneagram is really interesting. And something that you said is how it's important to have a diverse cast and personalities mm -hmm. as well. This idea of making sure that you're not just writing the same character over and over again. And I think mm -hmm. that one thing writers often do is we have to figure out how to put bits of ourselves in every character and not just have all of ourselves in one character where it's easy, especially in the early stages of writing, to naturally do that because we're writing from our limited perspectives. So part of the beauty of storytelling is that it encourages empathy because we learn from different people's perspectives and through that we can grow our own. Before we go into this question, because I want to know how do you make sure that you're writing different personalities and different characters at the same time? not making it feel stiff, if that makes sense, like not just like mm -hmm. following it like a code so much, but mm -hmm. making it organic and natural. But before that, we probably should go through what each Enneagram number is and the meanings of them. Sure. Just explain the test and the system, and then we can go into specifics. The Enneagram, each person you typically have one dominant type, but there's movement around the Enneagram. You're not only one type. You share traits with other types as well. And just so you know, if you are trying to figure out your own Enneagram type, you're, you really want to look at like the, the fears and desires of the type and see which one you identify most, not necessarily with the personality traits of that type. And they often say that like the type that you read and you kind of hate might be your type. All right. So I just jump in really quickly because that's true. <laughs> because... When I've done this, and I'd be interested to take it again, because I wonder if your type changes through your stages of life. But mm -hmm. I have definitely taken it. I'm like, oh, man, that one's obnoxious. <laughs> and I did that. I was talking about my cousin with this, and she did it, too. And she's like, I didn't like any of the traits that I was. <laughs> so I second that. And I'm curious to hear your insights about that. <laughs> what is your type, Abigail? Well, last time I took it, I, I'm also a four. I think I'm, uh -huh. if I remember, I think I'm a four with a five wing. That's what I am. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so there you go. So, yeah. But, you know, but I haven't taken it in a long time. So I wonder if I would shift a bit. I want to hear more what the types are and what they mean, because I don't know this 
to the level of in degree of what you know it as. So I've probably learned more through you than just taking the the flat test. Yeah. Of it. Yeah. I have a client who discovered she was a type four and she was really upset about it for a while because type fours can be really involved and emotional and kind of mopey. And sometimes that's not how you perceive yourself. But okay. So the type one is called the reformer. Their desire is to be good, to do things the correct way, to have integrity. And their fear is that they are not, that they are bad or corrupt, like internally. So ones are typically very responsible, reliable, detail-oriented. They typically live by their own code, like it, code of integrity. So they have morals that define the way they live. The type two is called the helper. This is the most outwardly loving type. So their desire is to be loved and appreciated and wanted, and their fear is of being rejected or unwanted or unloved. Twos often, they don't often know this about themselves, but they often give love to get love. They think that by loving other people and meeting their needs that people will then love them in return and meet their own needs. Twos are very warm and generous. They can be very like complimentary, sometimes flattering. They are team players. They're positive and nurturing. They can also be passive aggressive and manipulative. Type threes are the achiever. So their desire is to feel valued and significant. And their fear is of being worthless. They're looking for significance. And the way they go about getting significance is through achievement and respect. So they're very goal oriented. They're leaders. They're excellent at whatever they do. They're very ambitious. They can also be kind of insincere and opportunistic. Type fours, we've talked about a little bit. Those are the individualists. This is what you and I are. Type fours desire to find significance and identity. And their fear is that they are not significant. And that often shows up as like feeling like there's some essential part of them that is missing that everyone else has. Fours are very expressive and creative. They're perceptive and empathetic, very introspective. They can believe that they are their feelings and they can be kind of self-absorbed. And also we can be so idealistic that we're never satisfied with what's in the moment. We're always kind of like imagining what could be. Type sides are the investigator. They want to be competent and capable. And their fear is that they are not competent and that they are helpless. Fives are researchers. They're very analytical and observant. They want to understand the true nature of something. They're very objective. They can also be aloof and sometimes even paranoid or obsessive. Type sixes are called the loyalist. Their desire is to have security and support and safety. And their fear is of being without support and guidance. So sixes are very reliable. They're planners. They're proactive. They're problem solvers. They're very responsible. But they also are the most fear aware type. And so they're always doom casting. They're always looking out for what could go wrong. So they can be kind of suspicious and indecisive and anxious. Type sevens are the optimist. Their desire is to be happy and fulfilled and to have their needs met. Their fear is that they're going to be stuck in pain. Sevens are very spontaneous. They're optimistic. They're very fun and playful and adventurous. They're really high energy. Let's go have an adventure type. That also means they can be scattered and impulsive and not follow through on things. Type eights are the protector. Their desire is to be in control and to protect themselves. 
their fears of being vulnerable and being powerless, being under someone else's control. So eights are really strategic. They're protective. They're self-confident, determined. They're fearless. These are the people who they're like bearers, you know, they stand up and they fight for what's right. And they're not afraid of doing what needs to be done. But that also can make them sometimes aggressive or impatient or stubborn. Then the last type is type nines. Type nines actually sit at the very top of the Enneagram circle because they can see all the other types. And so they're called the peacemaker. Their desire is to have inner peace and stability and tranquility. And their fear is of loss and separation. They are very calm, accepting, intuitive, kind. Nines are the people you just feel comfortable with. They're adaptable, but they also can be kind of checked out and avoidant. They're self-abandoning. So they desire peace so much that they will do whatever needs to happen to avoid conflict, which often means disconnecting from their own desires. Okay. That's really interesting and a lot to take in. And I'll include something in the show notes that can link to descriptions of this because this is what I think would be really fun now is to play a case study game. I guess before we do that, I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we do that, elaborate on why you think it's important for writers to know their personality type, specifically ingrained in understanding their fears and their desires as much as their type and how that will impact the process. So let's start with that question. I think your story grows from you. And that doesn't necessarily mean that your story is going to be therapy or that you need to put yourself in as a character, but you give your story life. It comes from what matters to you. It comes from your strengths. It comes from your passions. So I am a type four. Self-discovery is one of my highest values. And I also want to help other people in that process of self-discovery, because I think the more compassion we have for ourselves, the more compassion we have for other people, and that makes the world a better place, which is also why I think stories are important, because like you said, they increase empathy. So it does no good for you as the writer to try to be someone you are not. I think if you can recognize yourself and embrace your strengths and your weaknesses, which are often front sides of the same coin, you can write with purpose. You can write embracing and utilizing your strengths and with your purpose in mind. So, for example, a type three is the achiever. They want to be really good. They want to be the best so that they can earn respect. A type three probably wants to have a bestseller and get awards and recognition and probably a traditional publishing deal and would love to have a huge <laughs> advance. That's important to them. And when a type three acknowledges that, they can use that as a guide for their writing. They can use it to evaluate whether this particular story idea is one they want to invest in. They can use it to shape the choices that they make. A type four, like myself, it'd be great to have a bestseller and all those things, but that's not my primary goal for writing. And I shouldn't try to assume someone else's goals for my story or for myself. When you can really be clear about who you are and what you bring and why you are writing, it prevents you from getting lost in comparison, in feeling like you should be doing things differently, because we don't want you to write someone else's book. We want you to write your book. Your book is what your reader needs. We need your story and the unique thing you bring to it and not the things that you think other people want from you. 
when you can really be clear about who you are and what you bring and why you are writing, it prevents you from getting lost in comparison, in feeling like you should be doing things differently, because we don't want you to write someone else's book. We want you to write your book. Your book is what your reader needs. We need your story and the unique thing you bring to it and not the things that you think other people want from you. You mentioned that with the type three, understanding what they'd want, of course, would help them understand their goal. However, it's good to have goals, but unless you have systems, you won't figure out how to have continued momentum in this writing process. How can understanding your personality type help you build systems and not just goals? Like knowing your goal, Mm. but how do you build a system from the core of your personality type. Each type obviously has different strengths and weaknesses. A type seven, for example, is the adventurer. They they follow the fun. They have trouble following through. So if you're a type seven writer, you may have a new idea every day and you may really enjoy diving into a story and just following the muse, but you may have trouble finishing the book and following it through to the point of querying or publication. And so if you are a seven, sevens often need some outside accountability and someone to help them focus their energy on one project and to follow through. So for a seven, having a coach or being in some sort of writing program can be really helpful because that person can help you stay on track and push through those points where you really just want to walk away because it is not fun in the moment. It feels painful. If you are a type one who is the reformer, who's very principled and responsible, ones want to do things the right way. So often my one clients come to me because they think I have all the answers for them to make their book perfect. So as a one, you're not going to struggle with answering all the questions and doing all the worksheets and using the plot structure and and finishing the book and even revising it. You're going to struggle with letting go and saying, this is good enough. Each type really has its own challenges in writing. And when you know your type, then you can recognize, okay, this is a strength of mine, but also at what point is it no longer serving me? At what point is it hindering my progress? Or do I need to bring in another form of help or a different system to help me keep moving forward? If we're going into a situation and we assume the worst, it's likely that we won't have a good time in that experience. Because we assumed the worst. We want to be pleasantly surprised, but it's a way of almost arming yourselves. So I'm wondering, and knowing your personality type, have you ever seen it trap someone versus empower them? And how do you pull them towards the source of empowerment instead of entrapment? One of the things that's beautiful about the Enneagram is it's really a system that is about growth and not staying stuck in your type. So in the Enneagram, your type is the way you have chosen. It's like the mask you wear to engage the world. And so within the Enneagram, it's about recognizing that that is a coping strategy and it's not who you actually are. My experience as a Thor has been that it has been very easy for me to see myself as a victim, to only believe my emotions, so to live really in my fourness. But as a Thor, 
I also connect to these other types. So I have two types next to me, which are my wings. Yes. My type three and my type five. So I borrow traits from my wings. And I have these connecting points in growth and stress, a type one and a type two. Those are the four's connecting points. And I find as a four, as I lean into my type one and lean into those systems and those processes and taking action, And as I lean into my type two, which is very others focused, and I recognize, oh, there's another person here who I can speak to and who I can help and love, that gets me out of my own fourness. What's interesting is you're not just categorizing yourself as one number. Your personality is not black and white. We're not just a four. We're not just a seven. We're not just a nine. We have wings, we have mixes and molds, probably in some ways of every type, but we might heavily Mm -hmm. lean on more of one other type than another. So what's important about that is to understand from what I'm hearing you say is that it gives us an opportunity to find our strengths when we start to recognize our weaknesses. As an author, how do we use this to create a diverse cast of personalities Mm-hmm. in a story. In work with my clients, what we do first, sort of the process is we figure out your point. What's the message? What are you trying to say about the world? And then based on that, what type is most likely to need to learn that? And that becomes your protagonist type. And then once we know your protagonist, we shape the rest of the characters around that. So depending on your point and your protagonist type, there are certain Enneagram types that will be more likely to be good antagonists for mm-hmm. that character. And then as we move forward, we'll figure out the types for the rest of your characters and see how that type relates to your point as well and can illustrate a different facet of what you're trying to say about the world or can challenge your protagonist or support them depending on what role they need to have in the story. So that wasn't like a very like, (laughs) I don't feel like that was a very... So this is not a simple answer, but this is why a case study is important Mm. because now you can go into examples of this. If I were to pick a story right now. My first choice would be Hunger Games because I feel like there are really strong personalities in Hunger Games. So if you're good with Hunger Games, I say we do Hunger Games. If not, then I would say Harry Potter because I'm always obsessed and that cast is huge. But if I were to look at Katniss, based on your descriptions, and see, I'm very new to this, so I'm going to guess, but you're going to correct me because I think you probably know the answer. (laughs) But I, I feel like she's an eight. She's this protector and she builds her wall, right? Yes, she builds her wall. She doesn't want anyone else to control her. She's the one who's going to take action. She's the one who's going to do what needs to be done to protect her family. And using Katniss as an example, how can we identify why that would establish her fears as much as her strengths and weaknesses? And how do you think that applies to her actions and how she takes action in the first book? Mm-hmm. Anytime I'm looking at a story and how the characters interact, I always want to take into the theme. So I'm always trying to figure out what the author is trying to say through this book. I think The Hunger Games is a lot about, obviously, there's this brutal <laughs> violence element. But I think when I look at the overall arc of The Hunger Games, it's really about what's the role of government in serving its people. Mm-hmm. And it's our responsibility as people to help to fight an oppressive government. Katniss, when I'm thinking about her in relation to that idea, she is so independent and she doesn't want to be weak and vulnerable. She doesn't want to depend on other people. But throughout the course of the 
first book and the later books, she realizes I have to depend on other people. I can't only depend on myself because if I do that, I'm not going to reach my goal. From that, we know that is your leading protagonist. Mm -hmm. So around that, we have to build a supporting cast that challenges her and supports her in her areas of weakness. Eventually, she has to shift her black and white view from I am the only one who can protect myself and my family to I need to depend on others in order to survive and protect my family. We have someone like PETA. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, so beautiful PETA, my favorite character. <laughs> what is PETA and why does he help that eight personality? Yeah. So let's see. PETA is, I'm trying to figure out his type. So he's very aware of Katniss and her feelings. He's very non-confrontational. He's very loving and committed. So the types that come to mind for PETA are a type two, which is the nurturer, the caregiver. They always want to help and serve. Or a type nine, Mm -hmm. which is the peacemaker. They want everyone to be okay. They want people to be taken care of. They're going to do what needs to be done so that everyone is okay. And I kind of feel like Peter might be a nine. Yeah, I think I lean towards a nine. For him. Yeah. The thing about a nine and an eight is that the nine is the peacemaker and the eight is the protector. And they almost have opposite energies. The eight yeah. is like, confrontation! <laughs> and the nine is like, no, 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 no. We don't need to do that. So PETA and Katniss really are set up to be in a lot of conflict in a very interesting way because PETA is going to try to avoid the conflict but still take care of Katniss. And so it's interesting because a nine, my husband is a nine and he is just like the most devoted, kind, gentle, patient person. And so I think for Katniss, he really challenges her way of being in the world, but also her perceptions of what other people are trying to get from her. Eights Mm -hmm. are often looking out for ways people are trying to take advantage of them. Mm -hmm. And nines are not trying to take advantage of anybody. They just want everyone to be okay. But then what makes Peter so interesting, because he is non-confrontational in his inner relationships, but he's very confrontational when it comes to taking down the capital because he's not for that. What makes Peter so unique as a nine is that he understands he has to play the game This is interesting because he talks about his greatest fear before entering the games. And he says that he doesn't want the games to change him. Mm -hmm. So how does that sit with a nine? Then Katniss says, I just can't afford to think that way. And he's like, you know, his so his biggest thing is I just don't want the games to change me. And they don't. He stands true even when it looks like he has shapeshifted. He is not. He is always acting out of love for Katniss. I'm curious about your thoughts on that. First of all, Danny Grimm is a tool. Like any tool, not every character is going to fully fit into any single type, unless you design them that way. But I don't think that Suzanne Collins used the Enneagram to play her characters. I don't know. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting to dissect it because it's like, it oh, is. is this working? You know? So. Yes. And, and so one thing about nines is they will be totally adaptable until the point when you hit their trigger, like the core value for them that you cannot cross over the line. So it's interesting, like my husband is a nine and I've seen this develop in him where he's like, I am no longer willing to let this idea slide because it is antithetical to who I am. And so I think that's interesting in PETA because nines are so 
they can be so asleep to their own desires and who they are and what they want. But when they wake up to them, there's just this steady wall of purpose and intention. And the way they go about protecting their belief or themselves or the people they love is not going to look like an eight who's going to potentially be quite aggressive, but it's just going to be this wall that the wave batters against. They're going to do what they need to do to protect the people they love, to make sure that everyone they care about is well and okay, but they're going to do it in such a different way from an eight who's just going to be sending off explosions. And <laughs> Well, and then ultimately, I think this can help you decide how to differentiate personalities based on decision making, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Because if every scene a character needs to make a decision. We can understand, one, when there would be conflict. Even if they don't want conflict, there will be conflict because of a different approach. It doesn't have to be aggression. It could be mm -hmm. Peta and Katniss in the cave and Peta is going to die if she doesn't go to the cornucopia. And Peta says, please don't go. And she goes yeah. anyway. Like We're not having fist thrown in that debate. But we can see there is still conflict because of the approach of what they prioritize yes. and what they're afraid of losing. So I think that's really interesting. Let's do another character, Haymitch. What do you think Haymitch is? Oh, <laughs> oh I don't know. Tell me about Haymitch. Okay, so Haymitch, he's the classic fool character where everyone mm -hmm. thinks that he's the bumbling alcoholic. At least Katniss does in the beginning. He's a bumbling alcoholic who's given up on life. The classic fool archetype in the sense that you would think that he doesn't know what's going on, but he actually, he's the master of knowing everything that's going on. And for that reason, he's able to save characters at pivotal moments where others aren't able to do so. So it's interesting, like you look at Hamish and when you first meet him, I think he even stumbles off stage during the reaping. So he is drunk. He's an alcoholic because of the trauma that he's experienced in his own game experience. And if mm -hmm. I remember this correctly, he survived his game experience because he did a hiding game. So I think part of that was he felt guilty about that, if I were to guess. But he also knows that this is how you survive. And he is the one who's always trying to coach Katniss in that if, sorry, the way that you're going to win is you have to play into the hands of the capital. At the same time, Hamish is always the one who is a step ahead of the capital and working mm -hmm. the system. So when we get later into the series, Hamish and Plutarch are the ones who form this secret alliance. And Hamish, when Katniss wants to make alliances with who end up being the best, best picks, but Hamish is like, okay, we also need some bronze here. So we need people like Finnick mm -hmm. in, in the catching fire. So it's just interesting. He's a master manipulator in a way. Yeah. So the types that are coming to mind for Hamish are either the type five, which is the investigator, or the type six, which is the loyalist. Mm -hmm. So the type six is always aware of what could go wrong and how to deal with it. The type five, I think oh, he might yeah. be a five. The type five, they're analysts, they're researchers. They are observant. They are objective. They can see the truth of a situation and mm -hmm. analyze and make a plan. And they also can be hermits and be yeah. quite aloof. And they are afraid of others' expectations of them. So they tend to be right. really reserved in relationships. So I think it might be a five. Yeah. Does that sound right? It could be. I don't know it as much. It's tricky. Because he's, he's a chameleon, like he's a shapeshifter, right? So 
what is his root personality versus the personality that he's playing in order to move the chess pieces forward. I'd have to sit on him and then have to study, I think, more. I feel like my answer would change a lot for him. He is probably has a root maybe of a five and then takes many, many different personalities Mm -hmm. at the time that it's needed. Yeah. And a five, the connecting points, so like the growth and the stress point for a five are a type seven and a type eight. Sure. So he meant if he were a five. In certain situations, he may be able to be the fun, adventurous, like lean into that more energetic side. And in the type eight as well is this protector who can really take action on what matters to him. And I do think he's a protector. Like Katniss probably is the only person with the exception of PETA in the world that he actually cares about. Now let's talk about Gale. Because James has this very attractive, awesome, Mm -hmm. complex, driving love triangle subplot. So if PETA is a nine, what is Gale? And I mean, like, if you were to take this outside of the Enneagram, I think you could explain why Gale isn't the better fit for Katniss. Yeah. PETA. But how would you explain it with the Enneagram insight? I haven't been in the Hunger Games in a while. I can help elaborate on Gail if you need Okay, to. go ahead. And then I'll, yeah, go ahead. I have some okay. types in mind, but tell me more okay. about Gail. Gail is extremely similar to Katniss. Mm-hmm. Now, Katniss, what makes Katniss really like the overarching viewpoint of Katniss, I think that drives her throughout the series, and that is she is most challenged by, is that Katniss doesn't believe in hope. She thinks that life is already defeated. I'll explain this more. Like Snyder in his Save the Cat book, it talks about this beat called Theme Stated. And this is what I've always explained of how you can really figure out a character's black and white view because a supporting character will say something to them and that protagonist either doesn't believe in what they say or they don't quite get it. Mm-hmm. And the moment that I think states the theme stated for Katniss is in the first chapter, and she and Gail are eating bread before the reaping on a hillside or in the forest. And Katniss talks about wanting children. And Katniss says, oh, I'm never having kids. Mm-hmm. And Gail doesn't quite get that. And Katniss is like, there's no point. I would never bring a child into this world where they're just destined to go into the reaping and eventually might be reaped. So she doesn't see hope in any way. and Gail sees purpose in having children mm-hmm. now of course the beautiful arc is that from the very first chapter Katniss is going to say that she doesn't want children and the last chapter we see is her with her babies with Peta. so you can see that there's been that arc I think that now when you're thinking about Gail when you're thinking about who he is he very much is a protector when Katniss goes into the games he promises to protect Prim Katniss relies on him to do that but he doesn't have the wall that Katniss has. Mm-hmm. He would be very skeptical of people that he doesn't think are trustworthy. But he's not to the degree of defensiveness and irrationality as Katniss. I think the moment to explain this the most is that Gail is a brilliant strategic commander. You know this the most in the final book, The Mockingjay. And Gail comes up with this extremely strategic battle plan to kill the people who are supporting the capital by trapping them in a cave. And Katniss says, you're going to kill everyone who are including innocent lives, and I'm not doing that. And Yale is like, well, this is the best execution for this plan. In that moment, this is the whole thing that leads up to the breaking point between Katniss and Gale, because Mm -hmm. the strategy that he has planned, while he's not the one who initiates this, 
is essentially what kills Prim. So Katniss knows because this is what it is. She knows this was Gail's brain baby. It's not Gail who initiated it. It's President Coin because President Coin is only for herself. But I think that it's a defiant difference between the two. Yeah. As Gail is willing to make those sacrifices where Katniss is not. Okay. So there's two types that are coming to mind for Gail. And they share a lot of similarities. So type seven, which is the optimist, the one that wants to be happy and fulfilled and have all their needs met. And then type three, which is the achiever who want to achieve and be respected. Both types tend to, both are very good planners and leaders. They're both motivating. They have a lot of energy. Type threes can step into any role they need to fill to lead others, to get the job done, to be excellent. Type sevens, doesn't Gail at one point say like, let's run away, let's just run away? Which makes me wonder if he really is like, can we just not, can we just (laughs) not deal with all this and just still live our good lives together? So it's interesting because if he were a seven, on the Enneagram circle, he would be right next to Katniss. So they would potentially have a lot of shared traits. And if he were a three, the similarities between a three and an eight are both their energy and both in this aggressive stance where they really take action. Now, what I guess I'm curious about is can knowing the Enneagram type for Peta and Gail help us figure out if there's a better match for Katniss in the end? Or does that not really come into play because ultimately you can have a personality type, but you still have to make your characters unique? If, for example, I were helping Suzanne Collins think through this, I think the question I would really ask would be like, okay, so what do you want to communicate through this message? And what does Katniss need to learn? What's going to support her arc the most? We know that it's PETA who's going to support her arc the most. It's going to help Katniss get in touch with those parts of herself that she's really afraid of. And so it's not so much a question of, does this type fit with this other type better? It's a question of what are you trying to accomplish through your novel and which types are going to do that best? That's a good answer. I think that makes sense. Now, last character I'd want to do, we could use all these characters that I'd love to do, (laughs) but for time's sake, I think that we need to ask ourselves the question of either what is the personality type of President Snow or Coin? Because if you have a protagonist, you need to know the personality type of your antagonist. Who would you rather do, President Snow or President Coin? Oh, boy. I don't care. You pick one. Which one? I mean, President Snow is the overarching villain, which is so interesting because President Coin is the real villain in the end. Mm -hmm. But I feel like President Snow, he's from the beginning to the end. So I let's pick him. Mm -hmm. Okay. President Snow is, he's a mastermind. I'm just trying to think about his traits. Do you want help thinking about the traits? Yeah. So he's definitely a mastermind. He is not against sacrificing children. Mm -hmm. So we know that he's not against that. At the same time, I think that we need to understand the difference between President Snow and President Coin because understanding the differences between the two, it feels crucial to being able to identify them correctly. When I think about the difference between President Snow and President Coin, is that President Snow is very much about order and President Coin wants the same thing to happen again because she wants to assert herself in a place of power so that she can have an overall ruling. President Snow, he's definitely extremely controlling and it's all about maintaining his vision for how the world works so that his place of authority stays in power. 
So I wonder if President Snow is a type one, which is the reformer. They're very principled. They're very reliable. They can tend to be really judgmental and to not understand anyone else's perspective, to think that their way is the only way. So when you think about someone who's really principled, you might think, well, they wouldn't sacrifice children. But (laughs) it depends on what that type one values. So if President Snow thinks this system is the only system that is going to work, as a one, he's going to do what needs to be done to keep that system running because that is the right way. Ones are typically very moral people, but I could see a one potentially moralizing the ends justify the means because this ideology, this way of doing it is more important than what I have to do to make it happen. Yeah. And what's interesting about him is he is very aware. The reason why he's such an antagonist for Katniss is because he understands Katniss even Mm. maybe better than Katniss understands herself. So from the very beginning, she comes home from the Hunger Games and she starts to realize the games are never going to be over because now she actually has started. And what's, I mean, the books are just brilliant. But what's really cool about the movie and the movie is an amazing adaption of the books is that when she rebels, when she buries Rue and she salutes to the camera, mm-hmm. we're able to see how that ripple effect starts to impact the districts because you see the districts starting to rebel against the Capitol Guards. And in the book, it's a first-person perspective, so you don't see that until Catching Fire, the second book. But all that to say, I think that is that from that moment, President Snow understands the threat that Katniss poses. And that's because he understands that his system of the games is that he's able to control the districts, reap everything that he needs from them in order to sustain their lavish way of living in the capital. But at the same time, he needs to give them hope because if there's not a victor, then there isn't hope and that will create rebellion. Mm -hmm. So Katniss, she's the catalyst really of that revolution. I think that President Stowe understands the threat that she is. At the same time, he understands what she values and loves. So he uses that against her Mm -hmm. as a threat. And from the beginning of Catching Fire, he talks about how something like Miss Everdeen lets promise not to lie to one another. Yeah. And throughout the whole thing is that he's extremely honest with what he's doing, why he's doing it. Like there is no hiding cards for him with Katniss. And it creates this fear factor because it's so authoritative versus President Coyne. When you get into her, she's two-faced. President Coyne's going to use Katniss and expose her to the point of even actually trying to eliminate her in the final yeah. days, right? I think yeah. I think coin might be a three. Yeah. Because threes are very, can be very opportunistic and just they're going to do what needs to be done to get power or achievement or whatever. And so it, it makes sense that they're also really good manipulators. They're going to use people to meet their goals. And I think she might be a three. Yeah. I'm not sure about Snow. Snow's hard. And I he think he be a five, too, just because he's so he can see all the pieces. He's just a like chess master, you know, like moving on. He's pieces a chess around. master. Yes. I think that's the big thing is that really ultimately at the end, Snow knows that he's lost. He knows a point that they're lost, which is why this is really he has his final revenge against Coin because he's trapped in his white rose garden and Katniss goes to talk to him. And she thinks that Snow has released the bombs that have killed her Mm -hmm. sister. And he's like, we were defeated at that point. What would be the point of me? What would be the point of that? He talks about this wasted life. He's like, Mm -hmm. obviously, I'm not against killing children for my own advantage, but I don't like waste. That's his big thing. So that's when she starts to realize this was coin. And ultimately, that whole conversation leads to Katniss wanting to kill Snow 
ultimately to be in the position to kill coin. And the last thing you see is before everyone is revolting and beating Snow to death is him laughing. So there's a lot of chess pieces moving on yeah. <laughs> through this game. You know, it's interesting if you've had a really small cast, when you have a big cast, obviously there's going to be people are going to share types. There's going to be more than one of each type in a novel. And it's really interesting because then you can show different facets of that type. If you have a really small cast, then it's probably more important that there's one of each type or that they are on very different arcs, you know, like maybe one is a positive arc and one is a negative arc. It's interesting to think about the Hunger Games because there's so many characters. And yeah, I can see a couple different types for Snow. I think I'd have to read the books again and really like spend time with him and read The Ballad of I started it and I didn't finish it. The prequel. Regardless, I think that it's really interesting to explore this and to see how ultimately, I think one thing that writers can take at the most basic root of using this tool as a way of defining characters and making sure that you have a diverse cast of personalities. If you have too many of the same type, there's probably going to be an issue, a lack of conflict in the story. Yeah. And if you do have, like you just, something you just said that was really important to hear is that when you have especially a large cast, there will be multiple characters that have the same type, but they need to behave differently and yes. have their different points. So yeah. that's good to hear. There's so much in the Enneagram. You can go so deep. And there are different ways that within a single type, there are ways that a person can be different from another person of the same type. So there's a lot of depth there if you want to get into it. But also, if you just want to stay the surface, it's just so helpful to be like, okay, you're an investigator. This is what you care most about. This is what you most fear because yep. it's so helpful. Yeah. And with that, I think we're at the top of the podcast. So we'll go into a lightning three. I guess we did a case study of the Hunger Games. A question for you is a lightning three question. Who is your favorite protagonist or one of your favorite protagonists in storytelling? And what is their Enneagram type? One of the books, a series that I loved a while ago was the Graceling series by Kristen Cashore. And I think part of what I loved, well, the whole series has, each book kind of has a different protagonist, but the first one, Graceling, she's really different from me and she's really different from me. So I think I learned from her. What did you learn from her? To take action. She's probably an eight. Do you think that you're drawn to that Enneagram type because it's so different from your own? I think I'm drawn and, and frightened by that Enneagram type. <laughs> well, I think that's part of why we love stories. We're given role models and characters we're going to challenge us outside of our comfort zones. To mm -hmm. grow, we have to grow outside of our personalities. Understanding our personality will help us exist in a way of self-awareness so that we can move forward with our best foot. However, we also need to not be afraid to grow and to challenge ourselves with those others. So yeah. that's great to hear. For the second question, at what stage of the writing process do you think that it's important to talk about Enneagrams with your clients or do you think it's important throughout the whole process? I think it's important through the whole stage of the process, but I think you're going to get the most. If you do it at the beginning, it's going to make the rest of your process so much easier. My third and final question, you've shared this before, you often hear that your book shouldn't be therapy. How do you differentiate between self-discovery and therapy in your writing? Therapy in your writing is for yourself and writing a novel for other people to read Part of the process may be for yourself, but you're writing for another person. In order to write an impactful novel, you can't lie. You have to tell the truth. The more you know about yourself and other people, the more you can tell the truth. I love that. It makes me think of Midnight in Paris. I love this movie. I actually have a painting I'm looking up at. Mm -hmm. There's a 
fabricated character of Ernest Hemingway in it. But he says, no story is terrible if the story is true, if the prose is clean and honest, and if it affirms courage and grace under pressure. Mm-hmm. Painted it back in the day. I made this surreal painting of it. <laughs> and it's up on my bookshelf. But I really believe that. And I think that it's speaking to exactly your answer there, which was so prolific. Wonderful way to end the podcast. And I hope that listeners have had fun. Had fun. Yeah, there's a lot to learn with it. You know, I think that it's, it, it's, it, we're always looking for new ways. There's no one way to writing, but we're always looking for more ways to see what sits with us and what's going to empower us in that process and creating characters. Mm-hmm. I think characters are the most important part of a story. So, yeah. you know, when you can figure out your characters and who they really are, that's going to help you move the plot forward in an even more meaningful and mindful way. Yeah. So thank you, Danny. It was wonderful having you here with me. Thank you for having me, Abigail. Can I share a resource with your listeners? Yes, please go for it. Where can we find you? What are the resources? I'm on Instagram at Danny Abernathy Author. My you spell Danny D A N I, mm-hmm. and my website is DannyAbernathy.com. But I have a tool that can help you find the best protagonist for your story, but find their enneagram type. So if you go to DannyAbernathy.com/slash-nine-types, N-I-N-E types you can download that tool also as part of that tool there is an enneagram type reference cheat sheet so it'll summarize each type and give you some of the traits and just an easy way to remind yourself of what each type is fantastic i'll make sure to include that in the show notes as well and i'm probably going to take the test now (laughs) great let me know what you figure out yeah i will (laughs) thank you once again and always for coming back for another episode of lit match I am so grateful and appreciative for this community. Without you, this podcast wouldn't be remotely close to what I want it to be. And that is the go-to source for helping you understand the submission and literary agent research process so that you can find your best business partner and therefore thrive with the author career of your dreams. If you're enjoying Lit Match and you haven't had an opportunity to rate or review the show, I am so appreciative to everyone who takes the quick one or two minutes to do this. This signals to iTunes that this podcast matters. And more importantly, it helps me get in front of more writers like you who are seeking ways to understand the publishing business better to tackle the submission process or grow their writing craft. I also am always open to feedback. So if you have any questions or recommendations for the show, I'd love to hear from you. And I do seriously consider and take into account any emails that I get from listeners. Next week, I'll be back with another episode with a literary agent. And there's a ton to learn from what he has to share. I hope you'll join me for it. Until then, happy writing. I wish you all the best growth, fun, and passion in your writing process. And if you are in the query trenches, continue to persevere. I do believe that when writers persevere and remain resilient in their work, you will find your way not only to write the best manuscript possible, but hook your dream literary agent with that manuscript. I'm here to support you. And I so look forward to not only hearing when you sign with the best literary agent for you, but celebrate your book when it comes out.